Okay, so uh, I'll be a little shorter today, I promise, than normal. We'll actually look at the miracle next week, the raising of Lazarus. But I want to start with something Doug said, and that is the law of timing. Timing to me is everything. And if you talk to most people, they'll tell you timing is everything. Uh, find someone who's successful. Ask them the secret of their success. They'll probably say, look, I had a great education. I worked hard. I took some risks. But, but a truly humble person would say, look, I was at the right place at the right time. It's just the way life works. Uh, sometimes failure works that way. Sometimes you have the right idea. It's just the wrong time. Reminds me of uh, 20 years ago where almost every Fortune 100 billionaire was on board for this new invention that was about to come out. Uh, Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett, uh, Bill Gates, almost every leader, entrepreneur, innovator was on board that this would be the transcendent innovation of the century. Uh, anybody know what it was? They got it in the first service. Anybody know? No, not the computer. It's more the Segway. Remember the Segway? Remember this? This was everybody thought this would be the universal transform. Every he's saying no. Every investor invested in the Segway, and it flopped. Now, it wasn't a bad idea. Many people just think we weren't ready for it. It was the wrong time. So timing in life really is everything. Now, here's the question. What about spiritual timing? This is where I struggle. Probably nobody else in the room struggles with this. But I struggle with spiritual timing because I want to be in sync with God. But here's what I discovered. God is transcendent. God is holy. God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful, and I'm finite. And uh, I am limited, and, and I struggle with, you know, God, here's what's going on, here's when you need to show up, and a lot of times, God and I aren't in sync. You might struggle to believe that, but it's true. It's one of the great struggles of my life, probably one of the great struggles of your life, and John has had 60 years to reminisce about this. And it's unthinkable that Matthew, Mark, and Luke never write about it. John, in his memory, is drawn back to this house of Bethany, and this becomes the apex of his gospel. It's not the death and resurrection of Jesus because he said he's written these signs, these seven signs that we might believe Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in his name. And he picks this raising of Lazarus as the supreme sign. Now, here's what John wants us to know. Look at verse 5. He says that, that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The home in Bethany was the closest thing Jesus experienced to a real home. I uh, uh, kind of had this revelation that if you and I were in heaven and God said we were coming to earth and we could design our life, you know, what would we do? And I think most of us, because we live in Philadelphia, would probably pick a coast because it's nice to be near the ocean. Probably pick warmer weather, to be honest, right? If we had to pick an occupation, we'd pick a really cool occupation. Like, we would go down the line like a menu and pick all the great things. But when God came into the world... He chose the least things by design, chose to be born in Nazareth, chose to be born in Israel, chose to be poor, chose to be a carpenter, chose all these different things for different reasons, and chose materially not to have many of the possessions many of us have. Uh, birds have nests, Jesus said, foxes have dens. The Son of Man literally had nowhere to lay his head. But it was here at Bethany, Jesus felt at home. Beth is the house of, in Hebrew, El, Bethel, the house of God. This was Beth Anna, the house of grace. 
And you all been to one of these houses? You know, everybody has a house like this. Maybe it's your house. Where you just walk in and you feel at home the minute you're there. You can open the fridge, let your hair down. You know, I like, I like houses where I, can be, I don't have to be Pastor Bob, right? I can just be Bob. I don't have to answer a lot of questions, kick my shoes off, relax. Luke lets us in in chapter 11 where he tells us, you know, Martha's cooking, right? She's making gravy in the kitchen and Mary's sitting at his feet and Lazarus is there. And, and, and I'm always amazed, Lazarus never talks. You know, the one guy we want to talk, the guy who was raised from the dead, never speaks in scripture. Women get all the talking going on. Lazarus never says a word. But Jesus loved these people, and he loved their hospitality, and he loved this house. And John, in his memory, says that this house of grace has now become a house of pain, a house of death, a house of sickness, a house of loss. And what's really problematic is Jesus is nowhere to be found. And, and, and we feel that all the time, right? Jesus is two miles away. Like I said, it could have been two million miles. The one that they loved is not there. And if you look at Martha's faith, it's remarkable. She sends for Jesus. Look at the request. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. She doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She doesn't say, I want you to heal my brother. She doesn't give the laundry list of things that should happen. She just says, Lord, the one that you love is sick. And all through this story surrounding death is this word love. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. When, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they said, look how he loved them. And so you have this, this death of Lazarus, but it's surrounded by love. And that's the tension we live in, right? This is the thing that's hard to figure out about love. Life and love is that we have a God who loves us. And, and we looked at the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And we're trying to balance out God's supreme care for us. And that death and evil that afflicts us almost every single day. The history of the human race has been defined by death. Death seemingly has had the final word. When God said, in the day that you sin, you will surely die, that has happened. Um, every once in a while, I check, and I just did it this morning, the death rate is still about one in one, in case you didn't know. We're all going to die. But you know how we deal with it now in a modern society? Avoidance. We never talk about it, we never think about it, we never process it, but every time it happens, we become like Mary and Martha. We're flummoxed by it, and we say, Lord, had you been here... Lord, if you really love us, if you really care, my brother would have never died. Both of them, Martha in her busyness, Mary in her devotion, Lord, had you been here, my brother would have never died. And the idea is that God, you are all powerful, you are all knowing, you can stop this. Why is this happening to me? Now, skeptics take it a little further and say that this absence of God is a sign that he doesn't exist. In other words, if there was a God and a God of love, there should have never been a Holocaust or World War I or a Black Plague or a thousand other evils. And we've talked about those things at different times. But this is probably the one glimpse in Scripture to God's timing and how God's timing is just a little bit different than our timing. You ever notice that? He's just on a little different timetable than we are. There's an old story about a man walking into a forest and he's having a conversation with God. And he said, God, I have a question. 
What's a million years like to you? You're eternal. What's a million years like? God said, that's easy, it's one second. Okay, God, what's a million dollars like to you? God's like, well, the streets up here are paved with gold. A million dollars is like one penny. All right, God, here's my last question. Can I have a million dollars? God said, sure, just wait a second. <laughs> God's timing, a little different than our timing. What do we do when love delays? What do we do when God's timing doesn't meet our timing? What do we do when prayers seemingly go unanswered? What do we do when a house of grace, a house where we love God and we sacrifice and we serve the poor and we read the scriptures, what do we do when a house of grace turns into a house of loss? What do we do when we don't feel God's love, when we don't feel God's presence, when seemingly the things of this world contradict everything we know to be true about the God that we love and serve? And I think the answer is we fall back on the clearest thing that we know, and it's this. God is love. You've got to know that. And, and, and it's not love American style. You know, I, I think Christians fall into this trap. I think we fall in the trap. We think, okay, God is love, so, so I'm going to take the greatest form of love I know, maybe, maybe parental love, like these great parents who really love their children, and then maybe God's kind of like that. No. Jesus said the greatest parental love is evil, right? Didn't he say that? He said that, that the greatest love you have is evil compared to his love. Or maybe we look at a love for a spouse or, or a friendship and we think, okay, God's kind of a little better than that. No. Again, God is transcendent. God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. His love would have to be greater than that. And the greatest definition is in 1 John chapter 4, 7 and 8, where this writer writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who doesn't, does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, God's many things. God is holy, he's righteous, but God is love. What that means is there's never a time where God is not loving. What that means is there's never a time where God's love towards you is not on display. It's the essence of who he is. And the Bible's full of pronouns. You notice that? It's not, it's not God loves us. He does. But it's more God loves you. See, Martha knows this. Lord, the one that you love is sick. She knows God loves her. Something we have to know. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever, we're all whosoever's, will call upon his name, would never perish, but have eternal life. Every hair on our head is numbered. His sheep hear his voice. Where can I go from your presence, Psalm 139? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. God, you're everywhere. This is the love of God always on display for us. And it's, and it's difficult. It's difficult for Mary and Martha, it's difficult for me, it's difficult for all of us, for one reason and one reason only, we can't see behind the curtain. See, Job could never see the upper stage. Job, when he went through all his trials and all his loss, he could never see God bragging on him in heaven, telling Satan, if you consider my servant Job, he's more righteous than anyone in the land. 
Our problem is we see things in an earthly realm, but there is something behind the curtain, something going on. Mary and Martha could not see Jesus and his discussion with the disciples, just like we can't see into the other realm. Ken Geyer said, Mary and Martha, all they can see is an expansive black curtain across their lives. They sit at home despondent, a black curtain drawn around their lives. They sit at home despondent as in an empty theater, their tearful prayer returning to them like hollow echoes of indifferent walls. Prayers just bouncing off the ceiling. Even though we love God, even though we believe he's powerful, even though we know he can heal, Lord, even now I know whatever you ask of God, he will give you. And if we haven't all been to this place, we all will be to this place where we're surrounded by great waters and great trials. And again, what we're experiencing doesn't jive with what we know about God. The beautiful thing is there's a scene that Mary and Martha can't see, but we can see it. And in verse 4, they tell Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. So when he heard this, he stayed two more days. Again, the timing seems off. And then he says, let's go to Judea again. The disciples say, Lord, they're going to kill you there. And Jesus said, well, I must work while it's day. And he finally tells him in verse 11, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I am going to wake him. Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. Jesus, however, spoke of his death. They thought he was only resting. Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe, nevertheless, let us go to him. Jesus delays. Love delays for a reason. Again, this is something we can't see. Now, everybody in this room knows that Jesus didn't have to be in Bethany to heal Lazarus. Like the centurion servant, he could have sent his word and, it, and they would have been healed. He could have healed him a hundred different ways. He didn't have to be in Bethany. But he waits two days. He waits literally till the fourth day. Remember what Martha says? That, Lord, you know, he stinketh. It's been four days. The Jews believed after three days you were beyond resurrection. So Jesus waited till the exact right time, the bona fide time when this had to be a miracle. And again, we'll look next week where he calls Lazarus forth. What is he doing here? What Jesus is doing is telling us that death does not have the final say. Everyone in this room has tracks that are leading into the graveyard. It's appointed for man to die once. We're, you know, there's a time to be born, a time to die. This is our lot in life. And Jesus is telling them and everyone around that death will not have its final say. This isn't all there is to life. There's a life beyond this, and there's a God working something grander that we can't see and maybe we'll never know. Jesus said this sickness or this death will be for the glory of God. Now, the man who was born blind, remember that question? You know, why did, who sinned that this man was born blind? Jesus said neither. But God's going to get glory out of this. It's not why he's blind. God's going to get glory out of this. God's putting all these things together for his glory. And the reality is, what Jesus is doing here is showing us something greater than the love they thought he had for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Because the original word is phileo, where we get Philadelphia, the brotherly love. And what Jesus is showing them here is agape love. 
It's a love of God. It's a love that transcends everything. It's a love that would bring them just beyond the healing because understand this. Lazarus would be raised from the dead only to die again. My wife lost her father when she was 16. He was 46 years old. Had he not died, he'd be in his 80s. He would have died anyway. We're all gonna die. But God has a grander story that he's weaving here. His agape love is far beyond just healing one man. He is doing something grander in his divine love and purpose that we'll never understand. Again, it's greater than parental love. It's greater than spousal love. It's greater than the love of friendship. Perfect love is not the same as love perfected. See, that's what God's doing. He's perfecting something in each and every one of us. And, and, and here's where I think we live. We talk about God's presence a lot. And I think in the last 30 years with worship in different churches, you know, everybody wants to be in the presence of God. And the presence of God means so many things to so many people, but I think sometimes we become like the presence of God junkies, right? Like, give me another adrenaline rush. Play another song. I gotta feel God's presence. Some people want God's presence, right? To give them things. But I think if we join the church of the ages, we need to experience not only God's presence, but his absence. Because Martha understood that sometimes Jesus' presence is not right in the room, but he's still there. And for centuries, people had to deal with absence. There's time in our lives where we deal with absence. Verse 21, he finally comes to them. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have never died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. She said, I know he will rise on the last day. That came from Daniel, where the just and the unjust, there would be a resurrection on the final day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, this is odd because Jesus makes the declaration before the miracle. In the feeding of the 5,000, he fed the 5,000 and then said he was the bread of life. Here he says, I am the resurrection. And by the way, it's in the present eternal. I am, not I will be the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The eternal present is what Jesus lived in. I am, Martha, the resurrection. I have the power. I could stare death in the face. And I love kingdom math. It's easy, right? Kingdom math is this. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. If you're born physically, and then of the spirit, you'll never die. Jesus said that. He said, though you were born and you will die, you will live again. So everyone in this room, every Christian's going to die. Unless the rapture comes, which I'm still holding out for, we're all going to die, right? The worms are going to eat your body. Don't worry about it. You'll get a new one. You'll get a better one. You'll be with the Lord. And let me put to bed one thing here. A lot of questions arise on this. Well, Pastor Bob, I heard about this thing called soul sleep. 
uh, comes from here where uh, Lazarus is only sleeping. Remember Tabitha, she was asleep. People even point to 1 Thessalonians where we talk about the rapture, where it says Jesus will rot, raise those who sleep. Um, there's no such thing as soul sleep. When Jesus talked about the rich man and Lazarus, after death, they were both conscious, not only of where they were in the eternal state, but also what was going on in earth. Uh, Paul probably says the clearest thing in Philippians where he says he's torn. Chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He said, if I live for Christ, I'll have more fruit for the kingdom. But think about this. Why would death be a gain for Paul? Because he said, it is better to depart and be with Christ, not to sleep for a thousand years. So the preponderance of Scripture is to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Born once, you'll die twice. You'll die physically and spiritually. If you're born physically and then born again, you will only die one time. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Jesus said, I am the one who can stare death in the face. The king of terrors, the last enemy, I can look it in the face. Not only in my resurrection, but in the raising of Lazarus. And he makes the declaration before the miracle. Talks cheap, right? Anybody could say they're the resurrection and the life. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's the key phrase. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I say this at every funeral. Do you believe this? Not does your church believe it, not does your denominational creed believe it, not does canon law believe it, not do your parents believe it or Calvary Chapel or Billy Graham or do Baptists believe it, Martha? I am the resurrection, resurrection and life. Do you singularly believe this? And, and you have to see what God's doing. He's weaved this whole story in his timing to bring it down to one individual, and yet that's what he does on a million levels. On our Guatemala trip, I got to spend time with a woman who grew up in Sri Lanka. She's in our church now, a former Buddhist. Everybody in this church has a story of their conversion. And God has weaved all of life together, all of its circumstances, to bring us to a place where we come face to face with truth. And then the question is, do you believe this? And her answer is, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world. And that wasn't like a declaration, let's go to a sports bar and watch the game. That was life-altering, life-transforming. It's the same thing happened to me, same thing happened to many of you. There was, there was, look, there was resurrection, and then we entered into life. For the first time in our lives, we knew what life was always meant to be. What Jesus was telling Mary, Martha, and all the disciples is that his ministry was resurrection. He had come to resurrect what the enemy had stolen. Now, I've never seen a resurrection. 
I've heard on the mission field people were raised from the dead. I don't know if it's ever been corroborated. I don't know if it's true. I doubt I'll ever see one. I don't need to see one. If I see one, praise God. But here's what I know. Some of you in this room need a resurrection. Some of you in this room, something has died. I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's a marriage, if it's a relationship, it's financial, I don't know what it is. I know what happened to me three years ago. Three years ago, I woke up one day and came to the conclusion, I am sad most of the time. I preached every Sunday and lived life and did, did what I always would do, but I inside was just sad. And through counselors and friends came to the conclusion one day that seven things in my life that I really enjoyed, people and things, had all come to an end at one time. And I found myself in this place. And when God revealed it to me, there was like this slow rebuild. And I would see like little signs of growth, a little budding on a tree there and a little of something coming to life again here. And I found the God of resurrection all over again. See, this is what Jesus does. He draws beauty out of our ashes and the oil of joy out of our mourning. And we can't see it in the now, it's so hard. But he's working a grander purpose in all of our individual lives. Do you know why? He loves us. He loves us. And he loves you. And you. And you. He loved Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and he loves you. And my prayer is, God, can we see behind the curtain? You don't have to leave the curtain open long, God. Just give us one, two seconds. Can we see behind the curtain? Can we see what you're doing? It's been raising the dead for 2,000 years. Like I said, Lazarus would die again. Be a big show, man walks out, all the bandages coming off, that's great. Only to die again. Only to draw a crowd. The reason Jesus weeped is that man would ever die. That we would ever be in the house of mourning. He came that we would have resurrection. And the reason the Bible uses the word sleep for death isn't to soften the blow. It's to show us the true reality of what death now is for a believer. No longer do we have to fear death. Now, I fear the process. Like I was up in New England this past summer biking and we were on a beach and it had a picture of a great white. And it said, be careful, great whites, they can come up to four feet in the ocean. Like I don't want to die by great white, okay? So the process I fear, but I don't fear death. It's like sleep. Everybody went to sleep last night, right? You closed your eyes, you technically died. Then your eyes opened again. You saw light, you saw all the things you know. That's what death's gonna be like for us. We're, we're gonna close our eyes one second, next second, 
It's going to be the greatest thing you've ever seen. Because Jesus looked death in the eye. And let me tell you this. There's a church on every corner in Guatemala. There's a church on corner everywhere in the world. That doesn't happen without resurrection. That doesn't happen because a man tells great parables and stories. That happens because a man looked death in the eye and said, Lazarus, come forth. If you struggle with the love of God, I'll settle it for you once and forever. When I read to you 1 John 4, 7, and 8, I purposely left off the end of it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. Here's why God is love. But here's what you need to know. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. If you ever need to fall back on the love of God, look at the cross. Because the cross is the greatest logic the world has ever seen. That if God didn't spare his best, how will he not freely give us all things? That's the equation you need to remember. The cross says he gave his best. If what you're looking at doesn't look like his best, He's just working a grander, grander story. But the Bible says the true agape love of God is greater than any answered prayer you could ever receive. Martha got her brother back, but she got something greater, eternal life, and a life with God that would never end.